indeed. And with that, I can also see that our next guest, Nuno Felix, has also arrived and will go to an undisclosed location. Axel, uh, I was fascinated uh, listening to, to Conrad here uh, in the, the topics uh, he was addressing. I think it's a, a more than important issue. It's absolutely critical for us uh, to... Uh, to understand uh, the economic implications, especially in, in countries uh, that are vital to all of this, such as Germany, is. I think that, uh, and I'd love to for for him to be to be back so we can um, uh, explore more more in depth uh, some uh, of what he was saying. This is, uh, I think, very very relevant. Uh, Absolutely for the, for the overall fight. As General Ryan yesterday was saying, um, we still haven't mobilized our economies sufficiently and our, all our capabilities sufficiently to really uh, create uh, the, the supplies and create the proper, sorry, excuse me, the proper assets and the proper uh, policy to address uh, this war as it goes forward. Uh, so, shall we start? I've shared uh, with everyone uh, here. It's good to be back. Uh, sorry, last week I wasn't able to to be uh, in the space. I had some uh, business to attend before the holidays. So, all good? Yes, finally! Yay! <laughs> finally! Uh, I'm being. I'm being this this year. I'm being a lazy European and having three weeks holidays so uh, uh so you're, re you're reinvigorated no no uh not yet not yet i'll be reinvigorated next week <laughs> i still need a week to to charge uh after running on on fumes for the last few weeks of before the holidays uh either way uh we have uh, interesting things to talk about we'll probably have an interesting guest coming on uh, but you know more about that than I do. That I know. Yeah, let's see. Let's see whether he can make it. I, I would hope so because he is an uh, astonishing person. But let, let's keep it for a moment. We're, we're trying to sort out um, um, uh, when he comes on. Uh, that will be probably yeah. in the in the next hour. And if he comes on, then I'm sure we're going to make it a great uh, great show. But let's let's start with uh, the regular topic, meaning uh, let's walk through from a thirty thousand foot view uh, of the goes. battlefields. After battlefield, let's start. Uh, if we're starting somewhere, let's start uh, where we uh, we've seen the Russians have a bit of success, a bit of success. Let's not overreact, because I've seen a lot of people tripping and overreacting over last week, uh, and though there's no need for overreaction. Let's start in Kupiansk. So, uh, if you look at those maps I've shared. Uh, you'll see that there are four maps about military land nets. If you don't follow them by now, you're missing out because they're great. And um, in fact, Russia has launched an offensive around Kupiansk. We've seen General uh, Tursky uh, addressing it. There are uh, several actions and significant assets committed by the Russians to this to this action to this uh, front, 
Now, let's get one thing straight. There's no 100,000 Russians in Kupiansk, Storm Kupiansk, okay? What? <laughs> There's no 100,000 Russians. I'm shocked. You're shocked. There's no 100,000 Russians. Uh, I've seen that number floated around over so many uh, with the idea that there's uh, about 100,000 Russians that are converging on Kupiansk. The front hasn't moved that much. Uh, the evacuation that uh, Ukrainian uh, government uh, undertook was mostly to protect the outlying settlements that are in the in, in artillery range and things some of the some of the fighting. Let's be honest. Kupiansk is important. It sits on the northern bank of the Oskil River. If you see Skupiansk, you have a rail hub and you have a ground line of communication. But frankly, frankly, it's a fairly a fairly large city. It's significantly defended. And nothing points to the fact that Russia will be able to seize Kupiansk because they're basically at the first line of uh, trenches, of defenses. There are several, and they're um, hammering at the first line of defense. And those attacks have been ongoing, but they haven't been um, very, very... uh, how can I put it? They haven't been uh, very uh, relevant or they haven't been able to breach Ukrainian lines. That doesn't mean it's not dangerous. Of course it is. It's a situation that Ukraine has paid significant attention to. But uh, Russians are still way off from Kupiansk. They still have two rivers to cross basically, in a forest. So there's... uh, It's not easy. They've launched some airstrikes. They've been trying to to get to a city. They've been trying to storm a city um, that is... uh, Let me find its name here. Yes. Uh, Sintipka, which is just uh, north-east of Kupiansk. But honestly, uh, the situation hasn't uh, changed dramatically. Um, Russians are basically where they were last week. Uh, Ukraine has committed some reserves to this, to this defense. Yes, they've strengthened it. They've uh, made sure that uh, defenses are solid. We've seen General Sersky there. Uh, we've seen uh, the Nes- uh, Ukrainian command share its... Uh, assessment, but but there's no a hundred thousand Russians attacking Kupiansk, okay? And I saw a lot of, uh, for lack of a better term, a lot of pearl clutching from a lot of Vosink accounts saying, "Well, Kupiansk is on the verge of collapsing, and the Russians are on the it's basically the great Popasna breakthrough redux." Uh, and uh, that's uh, something that uh, we need to to consider that it's 
an evolving situation, but I don't think Russia is going anywhere. From a 30,000 feet view, I still don't get this assault. I really don't. Uh, we've talked about it here a few times, and I really don't understand why you commit significant forces and reserves at this point to to a front such as Kupiansk. I think if I'm thinking Russians, I have a good defensive position over here. I'm not going to commit my forces to an attack that is, well, that I couldn't possibly succeed during the, the, the old the overall winter, and I'm committing it to a, a situation where you, even if they take Kupians, what do they get? First, they get an urban fight again, and then, and then what? Can they exploit uh, Kupians? Can they exploit the depth in Kupians? <laughs> they, they didn't do it uh, in a number of other places. Why should they? In Kupiansk, they don't have the assets to do great exploiting over Kupiansk. And even if they take the the <clears throat> sorry the right bank of the Oskol River in Kupiansk, okay, they've just secured a highly defensible position. They've moved the front west. What about the rest? Aren't they opening a flank? I don't know. I I really have trouble understanding why you run an operation in Kupiansk when you have the need for reserves in other places of the theater. But well, here we are. Yes, Ukraine has committed some reserves. Uh, there were some reserves units commit reserve units, sorry, committed to Kupiansk, but that's it. Uh, and there's no uh, big breakthrough and there's and all the pearl clutching from last week. Uh, about a week now, it's basically uh, gone nowhere. And the artillery... Uh, no, no. I'm sorry, please. Plan and go. Carry on. I was just going to say, um, yeah, um, no, no, don't you think that this might be a, yet another attempt at a um, publicity relevant uh, victory or gains which the Russians can use for their propaganda purposes. Yes. And secondly, uh, yes. and, and secondly, you, if and they I'll take Kupian... I'll give you another reason, but go ahead, please. Well, the second, the second speculation was slightly more stupid, to be honest with you. But looking at the map, they would have uh, quite a free... Um, well, not free, but they would be able to move down southwards from Kupian on the right side of the Oskil River and take this, as Latovia is quite well defended, they could could bring up the front down south from that point of uh, if, if they break the Kupiansk defenses. Yep. That might be uh, sort of the stupid, um, I would say tactical consideration. Well, uh, two things. First of all, on your last point, yes, I think you're, you're correct. Uh, that could be the idea. But the thing is, okay, so we look at Kupiansk, and uh, it's interesting if you... Kupiansk is important, okay? It was important back in, in uh, when Ukrainians took it, and it's important now. Now, the thing is, you could look at the map and say, okay, they're moving to Kupiansk, they're uh, trying to seize Kupiansk, so they can move their forces, pressing from Svatov, 
to uh, to the west to basically eject all Ukrainian forces from this side of the Oskol River, thus defending along the, the river, which would make sense, right? If you defend along the river, it creates a, a, a tremendously difficult obstacle for, for Ukrainian forces. And it's easier to defend. That's tactically sound. That makes sense. I think that's perfectly uh, a, a, an objective consideration that I could look at it and say, okay, this makes sense. It makes sense to take Kupiansk and to uh, try to move from Svatov and Kremina to the west towards the Oskol River to create basically a defensive line along the Oskol River. But if you don't, if you couldn't do it over the last 18 months, if you couldn't do it, over the winter doing trying to do this when you have a ukrainian counteroffensive in the south thus committing reserves that you may need elsewhere in the theater we go back to this idea that there may be a kind of a reminds me of a, a two-tier war right it's there's some guys doing this war over here in the east and there are some guys doing the war over in the south, right? There's no... If you look at it from theater perspective, the most critical situations the Russians face is the south. And if you face a critical situation in the south, which is the key terrain of the whole conflict, this over here, okay, you can say... Or I could go as far as to say... I could go as far as to say that, okay... They're in a position where they have ample reserves and they're trying to have Ukraine commit their own reserves because pushing this is important uh, for them. That could work. It's an interesting proposition if you have ample reserves, right? And if you have the hardware and the air support and 200,000 guys, to launch an offensive to try to push this towards the Oscar River. That makes perfect sense. It's tactically sound. It makes perfect sense. But they didn't manage to accomplish it when they had the opportunity. Accomplishing it now with other fronts under threat and the level of reserves being what it is, I think it's kind of a it's kind of strange and it's it's wasteful it's wasteful it's wasteful frankly i think uh, if i'm russian theater commander i'd look at this and say no no let's stay cool dig ourselves in over here in the east we let let it ride out and then we'll support the south that's where the main effort of ukraine is centered about we need to break them there and then we'll in the next round, we'll look at this, right? So that's why I say sometimes it's, this thing looks like there's wars going on, right? There's uh, some guys. There's a command in the north, in the in the east, that's fighting its war, and there's a command in the south that's fighting its war. Fortunately, fortunately, because the the, the sensible thing I would think for me to say is okay, we have consolidated positions. 
we defend this, we break the Ukrainians in the south, and then for the next round, we'll develop a strategy to get them over the Oskil River. That would be the sensible thing to do. Doing this in the middle of a counteroffensive, I think it's wasteful. For, frankly, thank God, right? The other... Well, that reminds Yeah, yeah, go ahead, please. Sorry. Sorry. I was just going to remind you of the one of the very uh, popular short clip from the beginning of yeah, the war are, where are, Ukrainian soldier was saying we are, very lucky that so, they are so, so stupid. stupid. Um, we're very lucky they're so fucking stupid. And I think that's that's a thing. I don't think Russians are stupid. I think Russians um, uh, Russian general command ain't stupid. But Russian general command has a problem. Which is it doesn't command the overall theater. This is sometimes there's no unit uh, unity of command in this, right? So this makes sorry little sense. The other thing you were saying about the the Kupiansk being uh, the Kupiansk win the Kupiansk offensive being an issue um, for information operations. Um, now, funny enough, there are those uh, with, let's say, knowledge that assess this operation had one purpose, which is to impress African leaders in the breaks of uh, Russia's military might. Uh, and it's strictly a political operation. I've seen this idea, uh, this idea, no, this... Um, uh, assessment from those who are uh, uh, well-versed and people who, who know what they're talking about. And uh, I'm not, uh, it's not uh, to say that this isn't the purpose, okay? So I think we have here uh, an interesting operation. I see we have some hands up, so go to the hands up. Would you, one yeah, second, would you, say, would, you, would you say, uh, no, no, that they nevertheless shot themselves a little bit into the foot there because they're treating their own forces. The Ukrainians, whilst this may have been an information operation at the point in time when meetings with African leaders and others were upcoming, whilst Putin needed to show his strength or his regime wanted to show strength, but they have now lost yet another few thousand troops that Ukrainians have now um, cluster ammunition, more artillery in theater, and can literally dictate the terms of the battlefield in the Northeast, reduce the Russians further, and make it ever more likely that at some point in time, at the time of their choosing, Ukraine's choosing, they could advance across, take the Russian positions, and go to Svatova. <laughs> you, you know I have a particular um, interest uh, from all of the, from all of the, the shows we already done. Everyone who's followed this for some time know I have a particular interest in the Svatov Starobilsk axis. Because when I look at a map, I look at Svatov and Starobilsk and I go, come on, man, this is a place. You see this axis and the whole thing has a massive, massive problem. Now, they uh, Russians ain't stupid. They've, their command has dug fortifications along these axes as they've done in the south, right? But uh, more Russian attrition is always good. 
they're trying to mobilize again. Uh, this time they've been mobilizing uh, Syrians and citizens that are uh, that came from the Middle East and are Russian citizens. They're trying to mobilize everyone who's not uh, in the large cities, not to disturb the regime. But either way, uh, whatever uh, happens, the the thing is uh, regarding this is, I think there uh, may be opportunity eventually up here. And uh, I've been known to say more than once that Svatovin Starobils is one of those places where I look at it and I go, you see that axis and that's where the honeypot is. That's where the money lies. Um, it's it's the end of Russian logistics in the Northeast and you can roll up Luhansk. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's exactly it. And the moment you do that, if you're in a good position in the South and if you have the forces to do that, because Crimea in the South is the critical terrain of the operation uh, of this war, sorry, but if you add this one to that, if you add that axis, the whole thing is up in smoke, basically. Uh, and it's, it, uh, I, I've, I've, uh, I've said this way back before um, we... Uh, I know, I we, was here. <laughs> we well, you were here, you were here. We spoke <laughs> about it months and months ago. So I see a lot of hands up. That That's the good thing. Dryfly, please go. I think you're the first, so please be. Yeah, go Dryfly, ahead. Fletch, Chris, and then Daryl. Dryfly. Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, I'm going to ask you a quick question. I'm going to posit that Putin isn't even trying to win this war anymore. He's just trying to um, create the illusion of stalemate to get it to negotiations and try to win the peace at the negotiating table. Um, that is standard Soviet doctrine. They don't care how many people die. They don't care what battles they lose. They don't care any of that. So long as they win the peace afterward, um, that goes back to Lenin and Trotsky and Drzezinski. It's just standard mother's milk of, of Soviet thought and Putin was raised in it. So if you go with that as a theory and, you know, you can criticize it if you want, but if he's looking to get it into the negotiations and win the peace at the negotiation table, he needs a stalemate. What do the Ukrainians do to thwart that? Because um, the dragged out conflict, while it maybe doesn't have as many um, casualties for Ukraine, in the end of the day, they've got to show progress to, to fight this propaganda war. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? And I'm thinking specifically of what's going on in Kupiansk. That may be a gift if they can really crush uh, the Russian offensive. And I'll listen. Uh, Dracula, I think you're right. You're correct. Uh, Russians, I think the strategy of Vladimir Putin has been ev evident for quite a bit now. Let's go to Russian strategy. It has been uh, quite uh, evident about three things. You're absolutely correct that they want to win the peace. I have nothing to add to that. That's my thought too. Russia needs, the moment this failed in Hostomel, right? Hostomel, and then it failed in Kharkiv, and then it failed again uh, in a number of other places along the front. It failed in Kherson. That's cool. Russian, uh, Vladimir Putin knows very well that his only strategy is that he, his only viable option 
is a stalemate where you get an attrition war, no big Ukrainian successes, and you try to outlast the West in Western support. There's, for me, immediately one major flaw in that, which is Ukrainian agency. He doesn't think that Ukraine has, uh, and Ukrainian military have uh, agency on their own, which is a, a, a daunting mistake, because they do. To outlast the West seems um, difficult. And why does it seem difficult? I gather, I gather that he's banking heavily on U.S. elections. That remains to be seen, what that produces, what outcome that produces. But, but, he needs a frozen conflict. He needs, there, he needs a, a sense that Ukraine isn't going anywhere, that these borders that are currently the line of contact need to be accepted. And he needs to bring people to the 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 negotiating table so he can gain something from a situation that militarily is not viable for the Russian Federation. I don't know if I'm making sense. If I'm not, please interrupt. You're making perfect sense. I'll listen. Uh, the thing is, the first mistake for me is is assuming that uh, Ukraine has no agency. Now, Ukraine has shown time and time again that they perf- they have agency. The, the Ukrainian military have agency. They know what they're doing. They have a plan. They're sticking to it, and they're defending their country. And they're trying to seize it back. That's one. Denying that Ukraine has agency, it's uh, a mistake. Second mistake is is banking that this thing doesn't hold without the Americans. Well, uh, this thing doesn't hold without the Americans, so-so. First of all, the European Union has very deep pockets. Russia cannot outspend the European Union and the European countries. Yes, if the U.S. quits its support, would Ukraine face a problem with the battlefield? Yes, they would. Could European industry uh, in European countries uh, keep this alive? Yes, it's possible. It would require a degree of mobilization we haven't seen. Mobilization, economic mobilization, in terms of industry mainly. But he will never outlast Sweden, Finland, Denmark, Norway, the Baltics, Poland, Romania, Germany. He will never outlast any of these. Not to mention France and a few others in the UK. But I'm just saying those countries that would support Ukraine regardless of uh, anything else. So that strategy is flawed right there. Yes, there would be a massive problem if the American establishment suddenly said, no more money, no more weapons, no more anything. We're not applying anything to Ukraine. 
it would be a massive political problem for the United States of America. A massive, massive issue. So, so there's no not, way back. There is actually no way back, no, no. There's actually no way back. That's where I was getting to. There's, uh, there's no way that the West committed as it is. And we're, uh, the thing is, we need to understand something here that's, that's very important. I see a lot of gloom and doom, but sometimes people don't reflect. We're doing this. Ukraine, not we, Ukraine is doing this. Ukraine is doing this with support, right, from countries, with support from stocks that are existing. Ukraine is doing this from uh, financial support between the U.S. and the, the, and the Europeans and the European Union without, without a massive mobilization of European industry and U.S. military industry. It is ramping up. And, and make no mistake, there are other supporters outside in the enlarged West. We've seen the South Koreans, we've seen Japan, we've seen Australia, to a lesser extent, for sure, but we've seen, for instance, Israel. And I know there's a lot of talk about the Israelis, but that's a whole different ballgame. But the, um, they do their own thing in their own times, in their own way, but the support is there. The thing is, there's actually no turning back. We've all staked our political uh, endgame in this. So I think Vladimir Putin is making a mistake. His strategy is flawed. Even, even if he procures, he, he tries to produce a stalemate, which I don't think he'll get, to be frank. You know, we'll go... Uh, uh we'll go there we'll go there um uh in a minute but uh honestly uh my assessment is uh that the west will keep um support we are seeing the us administration uh committing to a new package of uh, support for ukraine for the next fiscal year we are seeing the european union discussing the same we are seeing germany uh, fronting five billion a year for the Ukrainian war, so the support is there, and no, and for all the the gloomy doomers out there, no, Russia cannot outspend the Nordics. I'm not even talking about the U.S. the U.S. or the European Union as a whole. Russia cannot outspend Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and Finland, and the Netherlands, by the way. Their pockets are very, very deep, right? So it's it's a matter that I don't. I think it's strategy's fault, but I agree with you. He's, he's trying to freeze the conflict and and move this to a place where peace is seems like the only option, and there's no military solution. Yes, there's a military solution for this, and we've talked here about the military solution. Military solution is, as General Hodges well says, Crimea, Crimea, Crimea. The moment you make it untenable, this war is done. It's won. It, that's just a matter of wrapping it up and moving it around. And another thing, if we want uh, Ukraine to have a viable economic future, it's not possible without Crimea. 
and without taking the back the Black Sea Fleet back into uh, Russian ports. I think um, that's the the main point about it. So we'll go to I think it's Fletch. Please, Fletch, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, Fletch was next, exactly. Uh, hi, Axel. Hello, Nuno. Nice to hear you again. <clears throat> yeah, uh, just summarising this area, you know, I, I pretty much agree with what you're saying. Um, but if we just sort of take it, take a look at it over time. Uh, um, first of all, Ukraine pushed to Sivitovia and Kremlin and stopped. Um, obviously, logistics uh, were stretched at that point. And it's the only area on the battlefield where they weren't really pushing. You look at the whole line of engagement, and this one area was where Ukraine weren't really pushing hard, certainly coming up from Kupiansk and aiming towards Sivitovia, because Sivitovia went quiet for a while, although Kremlin has always been a sort of area where there's been ongoing um, exchanges. Now, I think the reason they weren't pushing there, there was a reason, and we're not aware of it at the moment. Now, to give you an indication of where the general staff are viewing this, I've been monitoring their communications over the last month on this area, and some interesting facts materialised around the Kubian taxis. Um, and this comes from General Sertsky and um, um, Chebarastri. Um, a couple of things that they've said, which are very significant, and I take note of these things. First of all, Sersky commented that the quality of troops um, attacking on the Kupian axis are very poor quality. They're primarily Mobix and prisoners um, and the Storm Z uh, uh, attacking groups. But he actually called them poor quality. Now, preceding the big push, and, and in that first week to 10 days, once again, the general staff said they used half a million artillery rounds. Now, just imagine that in the context of what's been said as far as artillery usage is concerned. And obviously, that big push occurred, and they, they, they were stunted. Now, also, when they started moving forward, it was a bit backwards in the forward situation. Sersky again made the comment that we have brought in reserves of artillery and they've also brought some reserves in, which I think are the TDFs primarily, and not using the, um, the, um, the offensive brigade. Yes, it's TDF, um, TDF reserves, yes. Yeah, exactly. So, so we, we know there was quite a few of those brigades held in reserve anyway, you know, as we know quite a few of them. Now, when it actually summarised that out of that 100k, which was mooted troops, the summarise was there was 11k, 11,000 who were active on the fence for the Russians. So as we know, when someone says there's 100 and 120,000 troops in an area, We've got to break that down to who is actually active for combat. Uh, and, the, and the figure materialising is between 10 and 12. So we take it as an average of 11,000 troops, which are obviously being attrited. Now, you look at Kupiansk. Kupiansk was one of the main areas that fell on the Kharkiv offensive. And Ukraines are really dug in there, as, you, as you're well aware. And they're not going to take Kupiansk because Sersky said this week... Yeah, our defences are such they will not advance. And that's a very key statement coming from the general. 
because he's been flitting in between the Lyman axes and the Cupiant axes and backmoots. So he's got his finger on the pulse here. So he knows exactly what is all going on. Now, now what I see, you mentioned um, that there is that opportunity of the Sabatovis Blinks area. And I see that, that, that I see that little nuance as well. Now, I've got a feeling, and obviously to support your your assumption, or shall we say, possibility, they've allowed the, the Russians to advance here because Ukraine weren't pushing. Now, there's a reason behind that. Now, it's possible, and I don't know if you'd agree with this scenario, it's possible that once they've exhausted themselves and they've culminated in this Kupiansk area, that opens up that area. It's a prime area for an offensive. What's your view on that, uh, Nuna? I think that's an opportunity, Fletch. I think that's that's the that's a great question, uh, actually. Um, yes, they brought the TDF. Yes, there's Ukraine reserves in this region. Uh, they're, they're deeply dug in. They're very well dug in. Uh, actually, the the Russian offensive basically got to the um, the outer lines of of uh, defense of those defenses around Kupiansk, around in the area of Kupiansk, not the city itself. And I, I'm a firm believer that there's an opportunity here to be exploited on Svatov and Starobilsk. I'm I'm a very uh, from from way before this whole counteroffensive started, and I've a lot of people here has fallen has fall has been have been following. I believe you too have been following this for my my comments for a while. I've said here multiple times that an operation in Svatov Starobilsk is an operation that in the in the north it's the it's the operation I would plan in the north. If it's me looking at the map, the operation I would want is Starobilsk Svatov. You cut the whole, uh, you cut the line, the rail line coming from. Uh, Belogorod, you cut the main ground lines of communication to Lugansk. Uh, you all of this front becomes untenable for the Russians, but it's 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 complex, right? Uh, but there's an opportunity eventually to to start something here. I'm not really sure if they're gonna launch it, if they're if they have the ability to launch it while the major operations are going in the south because Ukraine. The South is the key terrain, right? And we'll talk about it a bit uh, after we round up these questions, but the South is the key terrain. And being the key terrain, I think Ukraine's main efforts will be focused there. Now, if that starts achieving a certain momentum, and if you have more reserves up north, this could be interesting. This presents an interesting opportunity, but I'm not... I I personally would only risk it with the South collapsing. With the South collapsing, I would risk an operation here. If if that makes sense to you, Fletch. Can I uh, interject that? Yeah. No, sorry, Fletch. Yeah. One second. No, no. At the moment, if the news are correct, if the news are correct, Ukraine has east of Kupiansk in that sector from both uh, the, the mm-hmm. fighting ground which you described earlier and uh, Zemivka down. 
further by about uh, 45 kilometers, they have four, four mechanized brigades, which are not fully engaged in combat, but they are there. And uh, one, which is looking north and engaged in combat. And they have the third tank, which is still in the rear at this point in time. Yeah. So Ukraine is not thin in that area at all. So what you just no, described, no, no, and what no, we discussed, no, no, no. they are they are in a position that they could swivel exploit, through, exploit, exploit. They could exploit. Yeah. Yes, they could exploit. But that's what I'm saying. That the, the issue here is, I know they can exploit. The thing here is timing, because that's some rougher terrain, right? And you really need to cut down uh, Russian forces in the in the region, right? So you can exploit successfully, but um, there's opportunity here. There's always been opportunity here. You know, you know that I'm a big believer in opportunity in this region, Axel. Um, I've been one of the guys who's been saying all along that if I had to do anything, this would be one of the places I would plan to do anything, right? Just because it, it's key terrain, right? It's It's terrain where you could make really a dent and a difference and create a massive problem for Russian command. Because you have to defend Starobilsk and, and Svatov, right? The moment you start losing that, the moment you lose Northern Lugansk. You lose Northern Lugansk and the whole thing starts uh, going south, right? And and, and it's, uh, it's op- there's opportunity, there's opportunity, but I wouldn't... I wouldn't uh, say that it's already ripe for for a, an operation. I think we need to see how this moves, but I wouldn't put it. I wouldn't put it past uh, Ukraine command to exploit if they see the opportunity um, uh, to exploit this 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 region. I think that. So I agree with Fletch. Of course, yes, there's opportunity there for sure. That's that's important. Is he on that new vote? I, I mean, Ashkel is right. I mean, looking at the order of battle, there, there's, there's, there's between 60 and 100,000 UK troops around this area. Yep. Um, and a lot of these brigades haven't been utilised. So um, there is a reserve there for a reason, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe you're, you're countering the southern side because, as we know, new brigades have been introduced on the southern front as well. And also we've got the third hammering and also Azov um, being active as well around the Bakhmut area. So some of these introductions are tactically, um, th- th- there's reason for why they've been putting them in. And I think some of them are to break through the lines, but they haven't done that yet in this Kupiansk area, have they? Nope. No, they haven't. And I think, and I think they need to let this offensive play out, right? I think that's that's the um, the key issue here is they need to see how far because it's all it, it's also flat a way to again the difference between Russians and and in Ukrainians Ukrainians have a plan and they've been systematically all over the theater trying to draw out Russian reserves. This is something they've been doing since the beginning of this counteroffensive is bring on the reserves, bring on the reserves, bring on the reserves because. Uh, you need, we need you to commit your reserve while we do not commit ours or we don't fully commit ours because that's the thing with Ukrainians. They've, 
deployed a few more, even in the south, deployed a few more brigades, but sometimes they don't deploy the whole brigade. They deploy uh, a specific the artillery of the brigade or one mechanized company of the brigade, and the rest is left uh, in in reserve. This has been the game for now, right? It's it's bring on your reserves, and this is a plan they've been applying to the whole theater, right? The, you commit your reserves, you commit your forces, you commit your hardware, and we'll defend when we have to, and we'll counterattack when we have to. So, uh, uh, so this is a uh, uh, this is important, right? One hundred percent. Fletch, if you don't mind, stay with us. And um, would you mind if we we have? Five hands up, and I would really like to cycle through them, if that's okay with you. Hello? Go ahead, please. Okay. Who's next? I have, so I, I think I it's have Chris. on my list. I have Daryl on my list. I think Bruce, Chris Kevin, Chris. Next. I think it's okay, Chris, Chris next. Good. Chris, go ahead, please. I don't know. Thanks for taking my question. Uh, I'm going to take it back to a little bit more basics. I'm just talking about some of my observations over the last eight months and so uh, I don't know what part of it is maybe propaganda that I've fallen for or we have fallen for but uh, I'll lay out what I, I what I've observed and then you can tell me maybe what the, the trouble is um, you know about eight months ago we've seen uh, Russia uh, mobilizing roughly eight months ago I'm bad on timing so you could correct me if it's a different uh, time frame but we started seeing a mobilize uh, and we were talking about like the previous guy uh, prisoners um, unsavory people we saw videos of drunken Russians, uh, uh, you know, congregating, getting ready to uh, go off to training, I guess. We talked about how terrible they're training. They got nothing like the U.S. We've seen uh, videos of them receiving guns that were uh, rusted out from uh, old era uh, weapons uh, that were terrible. Uh, I, I even seen a videos of, of um, uh, instead of tourniquets, they were being given tampons as a, an alternative. So, uh, the, the, the picture was pretty bleak on what, what was coming from Russia. And yet, um, and, and there's a second part of this is, um, you know, how many, I guess the second part quickly, sorry, I have a tough time putting my thoughts out. Um, uh, how, how many, do we know credibly how many Russians are, are in theater, uh, generally? And then, and then again, what, what is the, what is the challenge that they're posing if that is the case, if they're so unorganized, if these people now they're going to get immigrants that are clearly not going to want to fight, why is it so difficult? Um, and I guess I, I understand that we have to be cautious and going at the right time and there's st strategic play here. But I'm just saying in general, if we're dealing with people with terrible weapons, no will to fight, what is the what is Russia posing um, that's becoming so difficult for Ukraine, I guess is uh, sorry if my wording is so terrible. But no, no, no. I, I understand. What I understand what you mean. If they're so terrible, why? Uh, Thank you. Is this isn't this unfolding faster, right? Um, if I get the gist right, well, first of all, not all the Russians uh, in Ukraine are terrible uh, units, right? You have some serious uh, combat units there. You have some significant assets. You have significant artillery, even still, even. If the artillery balance is shifting slowly but shifting, uh, but still, it's significant numbers. Numbers matter, matter, especially when you're in a in a defensive setting, uh, 
it's easier for numbers to matter. Um, then there are units, constituted units of the Russian military who are proficient, who are uh, uh, well, tra- well trained and in, in, in experienced by now. They've adapted some things. They've learned some things. That's, that's true. Uh, let's not say all the Russian units fighting are terrible. They're not. And they're fighting, uh, especially in the south, by laying um, hectares and hectares of mines, miles and miles of minefields, miles and miles of fortifications. And that creates a specific problem with breaching operations, right? And also some of this terrain is difficult terrain. There's a lot of urban ground, which is easier to defend uh Ukraine has been trying to avoid mass casualties for their their forces by storming the lines and they've adapted right so they've been systematic the Ukrainians have been pretty systematic and then there's another thing Ukraine has a problem which is manpower they've they have enough but uh, in terms of uh, equipment they're operating a multitude of systems, and uh, General Mikhail yesterday uh, addressed that specifically. This multitude of systems we've gifted Ukraine is not sustainable on the long run, right? Uh, we need to, to be perfectly aware that uh, it, we need to basically uh, try to, in the coming months, to uh, give Ukraine a more uh, uniform or a more standard uh, number of systems. And that re- really reduced the systems to a small number of things that we can give them because those are the things that are produced in numbers, right? So that's one of the issues. But regarding manpower, yes, Russia is scrapping the bar- is scraping the barrel with manpower. That's true. There's not uh, a million Russians. I wish there was a million Russians because a million Russians would really curb stomp the whole Russian war effort because their logistics would really be off the charts. It would mean that Putin would have to mobilize the big cities for full mobilization for war. And that would probably end his regime. That's something that uh, I think would be great news, but there's not. So basically what the Russians are doing, they're uh, heavily defending. They're throwing some of the best units in the offensive operations, and they're throwing numbers at it. Numbers and numbers at it, disregarding casualties. Now, one of the things that tilted this balance was the introduction of cluster munitions. We've seen how effective they are. I think that's a whole different theme I would like to, to address in this is that we should be giving also the M26 rockets uh, that are cluster munition ro- uh, rockets for the MLRS systems. That would make a tremendous difference. Not to mention that we need to sort out uh, the supply of long-range fires for uh, attackums and for towers. Because again, we have a problem. Ukraine will be running out of uh, Storm Shadow and uh, Scalp missiles soon enough. 
so that uh, needs to be complemented. But the Russians also, one of the things that the Russians started adapting and using that really makes a difference is drones. That has made a difference. Uh, and has made a difference for both sides. Okay. But there's a number of factors why Russia has been uh, doing this, has been successful so far in defending. The thing is, they don't have the reserve. And that's why I say that once a breakthrough happens in the South, uh, which we've been uh, uh, further from, uh, this thing will change and shift, Chris, I think. But uh, yes, uh, Russia has been adapting. Uh, Russia has some serious units there. And Russia has a complete disregard for their own wounded and killed uh, numbers for now, because they haven't mobilized the core Russian population, the core uh, Russian white ethnical Russian population, right? Uh, that's why Russia is trying to uh, to now conscript immigrants again, not to touch on. Uh, the population of the large cities. But that's my view, okay? I may be wrong on this, but that's my assessment on this, Chris. I hope that answers the questions uh, to some extent. Yeah, there's a number to implement this. Um, our dear colleagues, uh, Joanna and uh, Ming, um, calculated this down earlier with about 40,000 uh, men uh, having been conscripted, respectively taken in, part of them volunteers, not quite clear whether it's half-half, of uh, what is potentially an eligible population for conscription and for military service after all the other deductions in Moscow um, of uh, 1.5 million. That is less than 2% of the eligible population. So they're really not taking in Moscow proper and Moscow doesn't feel it much. But the immigrants, they are getting it. The Tajiks, and, the Kyrgyz, and the, and the and Syrians. The minorities, the ethnic yeah. minorities are definitely uh, having, uh, being mowed down in Ukraine. Okay. But actually, this, no, no, this is, this is the modus operandi of uh, Russia uh, or the Russian Empire for centuries, really for centuries. If you look at mm-hmm. their wars, yes. the Crimean Wars, the Balkan Wars, everything they've done, they've used actually quite a lot of Ukrainian, Finnish troops, um, and everybody outside of their core territories, which are Moscow, Leningrad, or St. Petersburg, and what have you. So this is, this is the... The ideology that's expected by the population that they will leave the you know, minorities bear the brunt. Um, yes, yeah, yes. Not surprised. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I didn't say I was surprised, mate. I just saw. <laughs> I just think that it's 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 their modus operandi. Yes, you are absolutely correct on that. But they've they've enjoyed the degree of, of success with this. But I'll say another thing. In that. Uh, degree of success lies a, a massive trap, which is the moment it breaks, it breaks badly. That's something I've been saying all, all along. The moment it breaks, it breaks badly. And it breaks and it causes uh, um, a collapse that uh, probably 
not even the whatever professional reserves they have are able to stem. I mean, this is a situation as the 1917 when the uh, troops from the front mm-hmm. actually Russia was defeated in the First World War, <laughs> strangely enough, um, although being on the winner's side. Um, so the troops returning from the front did decide actually the, the fate of the governments um, and uh, how the Bolsheviki managed to, to, to seize the power. That's a completely different story. But but the, the returning troops from the front, the troops who who refused to, to fight actually fueled the change in Russia. Well, initially for slightly better, but then for very much worse, uh, unfortunately. However... You know, and the 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 situations we had in Dagestan, for example, yes, people being completely unhappy, and a couple of other republics, they something brewing there, but I, I'm, I don't think it it is enough at the moment. No, no, it, we're not at the state. It's never enough until it reaches the large cities. That's been always like that with. Uh, with uh, Plumman, it's been always like that with Russian uh, Federation uh, history, uh, Russian history. Uh, once this thing hit, hits the the core population, the big cities, then a uh, different ball game is is ensues. Let's put it this way. But I hope that answers Chris's question. Uh, so I think it's Daryl next. Go ahead, Daryl. Hey, no, no. Um, my question has to do with okay, we are looking. Um, they there's gonna there's a lot of movement on the field right now. Okay, uh, Russia is looking to get to that stalemate point, whatever. My question: the lines have quite a bit from last winter, last fall. Uh, we are getting ready to get into this uh, weather change uh, pattern again here real shortly. Um, where do you see the best places um, coming up, you know, that these, are, you know, to defend or uh, to be in place before the onset of, you know, the really bad uh, weather? I know the South is not as bad because it's a lot more temporal, but in the north, uh, the weather changes and uh, up there, and it can get a little bit more brutal. And so looking at the battlefield now, um, have you even thought about where the Ukrainians should be or need to be, or at least... um, capable of being at that at a certain point when the weather starts to change because we always talked about oh at this point in the at this point in time this will be a good place for the tanks to roll and uh, things like that well the summer is coming and the summer is leaving and you know we are we're going to get to that point again uh where we need to think about where the the armor isn't going to be as effective if they don't get to this point or etc so, um, have you looked at that point? Honestly, uh, I think, first of all, the climate model for Ukraine predicts that this year uh, summer will extend a bit more beyond uh, September into October. That's what um, 
at least the model that uh, I had access to four uh, uh, C's, right? So there's time in the south, and we'll transition to the south. Regarding the south, um, I think in the south, in the south, Ukraine needs to be um, on the move. There needs to be a breakthrough within the coming weeks. Uh, so that it can be exploited. Um, and I think we're reaching a momentum here in the South that uh, are um, that we are uh, trying, that we'll see some the, a shift from attrition to movement and to uh, mobile, to movement war. Um, I think Places like Robotny and Starolnivka and all across this front, it's clear that these are two uh, breaches that are being exploited. I won't call it a breach yet. Uh, there's two axes that are being exploited by Ukrainian forces, but there's probably opportunity somewhere else. I think in the south, there'll be interesting things coming in Kherson. Uh, those bridgeheads across the the Dnipro River are um, uh, achieving an interesting prospect, uh, but but for now I'd say that we have a bit of um, time before uh, the weather goes. Uh, we get reach mud season. The 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 weather. A model, as I I said uh, that I looked at, says um, uh, September uh, October that we have uh, we have it basically until October. We are now in a position where um, there's a significant attrition of Russian forces and of Ukrainian forces, but honestly. There's some good prospects, I'd say, in the south. And the key terrain here is the south. Okay, the land corridor to Crimea is key terrain, and Crimea itself is a key terrain. Okay, so if uh, we are going to move there, that's where uh, a break a breakthrough needs to happen. And as as General Ryan was saying, a breakthrough is not easy to sustain. Well, it it will require some quite some some forces, and it will uh, you'll need to inject a few uh, quite some some assets into that breakthrough to exploit it. Now there's an interesting prospect I'd say around in the direction of Tokmak. I don't think the Ukrainians will try to assault Tokmak because they don't need to. But that region around Robotin is. Uh, and uh, Verbov, they're trying to basically uh, open up this this frontier more, so that they can uh, basically achieve a place where a breakthrough can happen. Honestly, I think uh, that the fact that Russia is moving forces horizontally along the line to get these breakthroughs is a sign that um, there are significant difficulties on the Russian side. 
the artillery losses on the Russian side, resulting of the strategy of, of attrition of artillery and counter-battery by Ukraine are significant. So there's there's quite there's significant pressure here, okay? And I think that Ukraine needs a breakthrough in the South. Once a breakthrough happens, if it's exploited, if it's sustained, if you open another front across the, the Dnipro, um, things are um, things will be looking differently. But it's all it's all uh, it's all about that to a, to an extent. And one thing I'll tell you is uh, there are some hardware we need to send, which is the Taurus, the Atacams, the Atacams. And uh, also the F-26 rockets uh, for the MLRSs. Cluster munition has been. Let's not be. Let's be frank here. Cluster rockets and attackums are, as a good friend says, the uh, European ground war dream team, right? They were designed to fight the. The pact, um, they were the sorry, the I mean, the, the they're anti mass, they're, they're anti mass. What, sorry, they're anti mass. They're they're the they're the the weapons designed to to fight the Warsaw Pact in the, the fields of Europe, right? So let's not stop, we should stop uh, dithering on that especially the attackums and the M26 rockets uh, and get on to that bandwagon and uh, uh, launch and and provide Ukraine with what is the weapons designed to to stub, to, to cripple the Russian army in its uh, glory days of the Warsaw Pact. And, and an important thing uh, about this is, and I'd like to make this clear, that only the U.S. Uh, and I believe Turkey have the M26 rockets, right? There's no M26 rockets uh, in European stocks because we got rid of cluster munitions, unfortunately. But that's the the that's the the notion here. So yes, the breakthrough in the south is where we need to be, but. There's also opportunities up north, as I as I said a while ago, in other axes of operation, and there's a, a war going in the Black Sea, right? And that's also a motive for uh, opportunity that that raises a different set of opportunities. I think uh, who's next? I think it's Roost, right? Yes, Roost, please go. Um. Do they have enough mine clearing equipment to actually make this breakthrough? I, and I don't mean in the long line clearing, but to break through minefields. Yes. And do they, it's actually delivered now. Do they have it for more than one theater? Who, the Ukrainians? Yeah. There's not enough demining equipment period, in uh, Western stocks, okay? There's not enough. No, definitely. But is, do they have enough to make a big breakthrough, or 
Mm, yeah, I think, and do they uh, have enough? Uh, it's working a breakthrough on more than one place. I think they they've adapted and they're. Uh, this is taking also so long because they had to adapt to circumvent the minefields uh, with the sappers and because there's not enough demining equipment, they don't have enough and we didn't supply enough. So there's they yeah. are they have to adapt. It. That's one of the reasons this is. This breakthrough is taking quite a bit of time. Is that there's uh, miles and miles of mines, and they have to to break through them um, the old-fashioned way, right? They have to demine it as they go, and that's significantly difficult. But uh, one of the things is there's not enough demining equipment, in engineering equipment, in Western stocks to supply. That's uh, uh, that's easy to explain. It's called the global war on terror. For twenty more years, we had uh, all, all of our mining equipment um, rotting in uh, warehouses because we, we yeah, didn't need it. It's not encouraging. Yeah, we didn't need it. In in combat engineering, hasn't been something we've uh, not even the Americans have enough the mining equipment, right? So, Hello. but the Americans have. Let's the Americans, hopefully, we make it up with air power, right? Yeah, but we don't give them air power either. We didn't give air power either. <laughs> yes, and the F sixteen has been a, a, a quite a drama. Honestly, um, it's not our finest hour. The F 16s Let's put it this way: to be. No, nope. be diplomatic. Um, it's not definitely not our finest hour, and we've seen a lot of feet dragging about the F 16s when the F 16 is basically the only viable option. And I know Axel will tell you about the F 18s and whatnot. Yes, I know that, Axel, but uh, they're lovely, yeah. they're wonderful. Yeah, but the F 16 honestly is the only viable option. Even the Mirage is not a viable option. The only sustainable viable option in numbers is the F-16. Uh, we... I beg to differ. I, <laughs> I know you differ. I know you differ. I know you differ. But uh, the thing is, uh, the F-16s haven't been our finest hour, honestly. Uh, and the fact that we are still dragging our feet collectively on this matter is not um, uh, actually Jack Watling of uh, Ruzi uh, wrote uh, an excellent article that I recommend to everyone I think yeah, Axel may have it I'll have to look it um, I can put it in the nest yeah, yeah put it in the nest it's yeah. a it's a, a quick follow up on the mind yes go um, they have in the south, in at least one, maybe two directions, they are now at the main lines of defense. Mm -hmm. Robotony, yes. Yeah. Are they... Will... Have they mined as much behind these lines? No. That's no. nothing. There's obviously mines laid uh, after the so-called Surovikan line. But it's nothing compared to the the main defensive line. 
that's why I say we need to a breakthrough, a sustained breakthrough, to then uh, exploit the debt, because in debt there's places here there's nothing, and that's the that's the the issue here. And it's gonna hurt, but they need to do it. If, yeah, but it's gonna hurt. Yes, it's gonna hurt. It's hurting, and but the moment if they do it and they sustain it, there's places here there's nothing. There's nothing. There's yes. There's heavily defended cities like Tokmark and Melitopol and whatnot, but you don't really need to take them. So uh, the moment you break through, it's a different ball game, right? But honestly, um, you know, we need we need we need to remember that most of these new newly equipped brigades they don't have much experience. Yes, and, and we're talking. We're telling them to fight. Yeah, and we were telling them to fight uh, combined arms war without a critical part, which is the air power, right? Uh, yes. You can, you can, to an extent, uh, uh, make up for the air power with artillery, with drones and whatnot, but honestly, uh, honestly, what the Ukrainians are pulling out here is nothing short of a miracle in modern warfare. Um and we are still dithering. And one of the things that saddens me in the West, in Europe, I'll speak for the Europeans, but the Americans are pretty much the same, is, and as Jack Watling said, we, our governments collectively, haven't risen to the occasion and said, okay, let's mobilize industry, let's get these guys what they need, because this overall for us, it's cheaper. We, we're not fighting, they're fighting. And we'll uh, make our industry their backbone, right? And that's something that the Russians could not deal with, right? This will eventually happen at great cost for Ukraine, okay? But this will eventually happen. Uh, success is important also because it stems support. And we must not forget that one of the things Vladimir Putin wants is for us is to outlast the West. It's his most critical, uh, it's his only uh, strategy that's available for him to gain something is freezing the conflict. And if he only manages to freeze the conflict if we let him. Because Russia, uh, despite what uh, all the Vatniks out there say, Russia cannot compete with industrial power. Not even the Chinese can compete with industrial, the, with the defense industrial base, fully mobilized defense industrial base of the U.S. and Europe. Fifty <laughs> percent mobilized industrial base of the U.S. and Europe. Right? If we manage to do that, they don't stand a chance. We haven't yet. In numbers, things are happening. There's good things happening. But there's a lot of, um, in a sense, that uh, Western governments are sometimes dealing with this uh, crisis as it's another crisis, like you deal with another crisis. Beyond the initial shock of a major land war in Europe, it has now gone into government routine as another crisis that needs to be managed. And this is uh, somehow delaying the effort. We, uh, Ukraine needs, uh, the once these breakthroughs happen, and I'm optimistic about this, 
when uh, once this happens, if we see the South uh, uh, evolving fast, things will be uh, different. A number of things will be unlocked. I think that's uh, an important factor here. I think I don't know who's next. I hope you do, Axel. I think it's Alex. Actually, we lost we lost a lot of the hands <laughs> because we satisfied think... the request. But it definitely was Alex, and uh, then we can continue from there. Then Abdullah. I think it's up. Alex, uh, G man. I think and Abdullah and Fletch and well, go ahead, Alex, please. Thank you, uh, guys. Um, very interesting. You know, I my question is about this um, Berdyansk. Uh, direction and the other one Mariupol direction. So there was information from uh, Ukrainian analyst Petrenko that uh, Ukrainian troops are in Robotino. And and on the other side, I think they were attacking um, Zavetno Zelani. What do you make of it? Like... um, Especially Robotino, are they making good progress or? Um... Yes, Robotin is one of the places. Robotini is one of the places where I see breakthrough happening. They're shaping it up to be, to create a breakthrough here. They're at the first line of defense. Uh, they've been significantly successful for now, and I see that if they attack Verbov during the uh, east of Robotin and then move to the west and they open up this front there's some good things happening here and this is in the direction of Tokmak right um, I see Robotin here as as um, interesting interesting. it's one of the places where I see some a breakthrough happening they have now breached the first line of defenses uh, and things are looking up. The other place is along the southern front is uh, Staromlinivka. The fight for Staromlinivka is the next important fight here. Okay, Make no mistake about this. Uh, once Staromlinivka is done for, uh, we have a, a very interesting opportunity brewing Um Along the this side of this is already in Donetsk. Technically, it's on Donetsk Oblast, but uh, from Staromlinivka down south, uh, you have a very interesting opportunity to to then head uh, south to towards Mariupol. Is that Staromayorsk, uh, which Staromayorsk? Staromayorsk is under Ukraine control, so is Ruzain is under Ukraine control. It's just south of Ruzain, right? Staromlinivka. Okay. If you look at a map, if you look at the map, Staromlinivka commands basically the ground lines of communication, west, east, and south, right? right. And it runs and the road runs parallel to the Macriol River. Okay. If you have forces on the both sides of the river. You can really drive south. How you would assess Russian troops uh, on both directions, especially on Robotny? Were they able to? I, I, they've committed some reserves to Robotny, uh, VDV reserve to Robotny. But uh, the thing here in the south is 
I think Ukrainian command has reached the conclusion that Russian reserves in the south have been exhausted. Mm-hmm. Which means they've committed most of their reserves. Of course, there's always additional, but the the, the significant... Hello? Yeah, uh, Nuno, we lost uh, you for uh, a second. Yeah, my, my mic. Sorry. I say that, I was saying that the... Sorry, the Russians committed some additional reserves with VDV, sorry, VDV unit to the south uh, in Robotany, but um, it's going, uh, but I think Ukrainian command has reached the conclusion that uh, there's, they have most of their uh, reserves committed there. They also moved, Russians moved uh, some troops uh, to defend um, uh, the direction near Kazachi Lageri. Uh-huh. Um, where did they took that? Where did they take those troops from? I think Crimea. Oh, from Crimea? Okay. Yes, it's 60 kilometers from Armyansk. So, but... That's the beauty. That's the beauty of that place. D- does it mean... Yeah. But does it mean that they had some reserves in Crimea? They still have reserves in Crimea, yes. That's why the attackums was so important to hit those logistic depots in Crimea. They have some reserves in Crimea, but the problem with the Russians face is if they depopulate Crimea of whatever units they have there, I'm not really sure how many. I think I would need to see some uh, classified uh, briefings there to, to see what's what's the number. Um, uh, uh, what's the numbers exactly? But I'd say that in uh, in that region of uh, the Dnipro and Kherson crossings, there's uh, an interesting operation brewing. Thank you very much. No problem. Thank you. Uh, I think Axel Alex is the G man. I think it's you. I'm not really sure, but I will go. G man had Abdul. his hand up, but took his hand down. But uh, please, G man, if you uh, have a question, feel free. And Abdullah next. Yeah, thanks. And uh, evening, you know. I've got a question. I saw something yesterday um, on Telegram about the French AMX. Uh, you know, the light tank that's not a tank because it's got, not got tracks, it's got wheels. And, and no side armor. The story, and I'm sure it was, yeah, they're not tanks because they're, you know. But the story was that they were taken out by sniper teams immobilizing them by shooting the, the wheels, the tires, and then artillery zeroing in. And I'm not sure if that's true, if it's just um, a bit of I, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that. Yeah, I'll try and locate the um, the story, but uh, yeah, I haven't seen that. But I'm wondering. Obviously, this this war is going to produce um, lessons for the the Western militaries. Quite a lot of which have been starting to look at infantry fighting vehicles that have wheels rather than uh, you know road with big, big 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 tires rather than having tracks. The British Army's looking at it. And kind of gone down that road of this um, boxer um, and other, others maybe too and I'm just wondering we'll decide as, oh that's a mistake and go back to tracks I think, I think uh, this, is, this, is, this war is producing uh, significant lessons for everyone 
including the way we fight. Well, one of the lessons is um, don't go anywhere without your uh, anti-drone capability, right? That's one. Don't leave home without a, a self-propelled anti-air gun. Um, that's one, right? Uh, the the drone uh, aspect of this is uh, just staggering. The other thing that's uh, important in this war, I'd say, the tracked versus will debate, yes. IFVs, definitely. We've seen, actually, we've seen the superior nature of uh, Western IFVs, especially the Bradley, uh, regarding uh, uh, combat. And another aspect I would I would point out is uh, that we need uh, clearly to understand uh, that uh, if we're going to fight a war like this, engineering is an issue, right? Uh, engineering assets is something we need to look at and we haven't in in quite some time. So that's an important an important asset that we need to develop in everyone's army. There's there's numerous numerous lessons that we all should take from the from the war in Ukraine, and there'll be, I hope, uh, lessons learned uh, for everyone, and not uh, let's not uh, forget how this was. And and the other lesson here is something more complex to to say, which is the importance of informal uh, support for forces, civil society support, the importance of NGOs, the importance of corporate support, the importance of mobilizing society uh, as a whole in its whole. It's different, both corporate society, both civil society, uh, for to support a war effort. That's a big lesson from this war. And it's something we should really incorporate in our doctrine if we want to fight the future, the wars of the future. It's something really interesting to discuss. And I think it's something eventually uh, merits a discussion on its own. And guys like Mick Ryan have been working on it and others uh, like... Uh, uh, Jahara Matisek and guys at Naval War College have been working on it, and it's really an interesting, interesting aspect of this war. But, yeah. I was just going to remark, Nuno, you're absolutely right on this one. Um, and, and we should name the other side of this this equation. This is the suppression of propaganda, which we have seen happening so so aggressively throughout our societies, eroding the support for the war effort and actually achieving the fact that we are still not at war footing, although the enemy on the other side is at war and it's on war footing. And this is this is all the work of propaganda and this is paralyzing our politicians. Mm -hmm. and, and we need to... The importance, yeah, of, the, sorry, the, the importance of the information space. The importance of, of of what we are doing here, right? Uh, people sometimes think uh, when we do this, these spaces, um, 
first of all, people think we get paid for this. That's uh, not true. And then uh, people also think that um, this is irrelevant. It's not. Uh, fighting the war in the information space is a, in an information society, fighting the war in the information space is a critical domain of warfare. We've seen the success in the impact of not only take, for instance, one example I'll, I'll, uh, I'll say is uh, NAFO. NAFO has been a prime example of information warfare against the enemy. And the other thing, the other part of this equation, it's up. Maria report, for instance, it's information warfare. Well, especially with specialists like you who can explain to us uh, who are not military people to explain us the logic, uh, the, the, the failures and the ruses by the Russians, which is very important. As I said, especially, especially around Kupiansk, why I mentioned the, 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 the thing about um, <laughs> The, um, the the propaganda is because I've seen numerous trolls using Kupiansk beforehand, uh, using it a week ago, as a as a rallying the troops cry, and this is clearly something we we have to do better actually. Uh, yes, and voices like yours are especially important to dispel and explain in simple terms how stupid the military actions sometimes, or how disorganized or uncoordinated those actions are. And, and, Thank and, you. And, but more than that, uh, I think uh, the other thing is uh, we need to, to do better in mobilizing uh, our societies in its strength. Democracies have many problems, but as Churchill said, uh, it's usually the, it's the, the worst possible system with the exception of all other, right? Uh, Absolutely. And we have significant strengths as democracy. We have, we're not using our power not to a 20% of what we can do. And make no mistake, I'll say this without uh, an inch of hubris, but go to a, a, a chart, uh, go to a, a foreign exchange chart and look up. We see all this propaganda, for instance, about the Chinese and the yuan and the end of the dollar. And the, let's not talk about the ruble, that's bliat coin. Um, but uh, all of this, the bricks, this and the bricks, that, and, and the decay of the West. You go to a chart and you see uh, the how... Uh, how much of international trade is done in international foreign reserves are done in dollars, in euros. Trust me. You add dollars, Absolutely. euros, the British pounds, the yen, and you have about 80% of all trade in the, in the world. All trade in the world. That's our power. Absolutely. Absolutely, and you're absolutely right. But these are the facts. Exactly. But those guys, the propaganda, the Russian propaganda aims not at facts. They aim to discourage our 
society and especially discourage our politicians to take affirmative action, to scare them before even trying, to make them believe they're weak while they are strong. And they are achieving this goal. And, and you know, sometimes I, I, I worry what will happen if, if uh, some elections go wrong in, in the U.S. And, uh, you know, um, and looking at Germany, for example, we had a large segment on Germany. Um, this, is, this is something which has hurt us already, and we have to be conscious about that. Yes, definitely. And, and uh, we have to be conscious of our own strengths and our own limitations. But we do have some, quite some strength, right? And, and people talk about the rise of China, for instance. In, if you look at the numbers of China nowadays, you're, that's not a tale of a rising power. Okay? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You're, you're absolutely Sorry? right. We, we were made to believe we have weaknesses. We were made to forget our strength. Yeah, and, and we that is their goal. And we've been told that we're divided, and that we're uh, weak because of our diversity, and then uh, we're weak uh, because we have a model of society that's it's regulated and whatnot. Yeah. Actually, uh, that's not true, and. We haven't mobilized our economies to support Ukraine in in terms of defense uh, production, for instance, and they're still in in the fight in winning. What happens if we do? We'd steamroll the Russians. We'd steamroll Russia. Russia being uh, uh, a commodities power is an economy the size of Spain. You have an economy the size of Spain trying to fight a war bankrolled against a country that's fighting for its freedom bankrolled by the United States of America and the European Union. Come on. Are we serious? They don't stand a chance. That's what upsets me. That's what personally upsets me. They don't stand a chance. And I see a lot of people also, but the global south. Well, I'm no one to say this, but the Global South, I'm sorry, guys, but the Global South is a mirage of academy. The mirage of a bunch of academics. Yeah, There's no thing as the Global South. There's no homogeneity. There's no consistency. There's no grouping in them. No, there's countries, large countries, regional powers with very significant uh, differentiated and sometimes conflicting interests as there always was. The Global South is preparing to invade the Global South in Niger. Right? The Global South of Argentina, the guy who's running for president, who's, who's who won the primaries, is the... He needs the, a barber. It's it needs a barber, needs a barber, needs a shave, definitely, needs a haircut, uh, needs to bang his head against the wall. But it's the opposite, the 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 ideologic opposite of Brazil, right? Who's an old school Latin American communist who still believes in Mother Russia as the, the land of socialism. That's something that fascinates me. Also, it's the the communists. 
uh, this is a bit of a rant to an extent, but the, the fascination the communists have with the, the Russians, anyway, nobody got the memo that the whites won. I mean, uh, Vladimir Putin is a fascist nationalist dictator, man. It's not a communist socialist. Yeah, but they have the Sendero Luminoso always in mind. No, no. <laughs> Dude, come on. <laughs> you know what? As, as, as they are blindfolded. They will never learn. As, as President Biden would say, come on, man. Right? Come on. What are you talking about? Right? 21st century. No... <laughs> yeah, there's no such thing. Uh, uh, it reminds me of the BRICS. The BRICS this, the BRICS that, the BRICS X, Y, Z, BRICS gonna dominate the world. The Indians and the Chinese are basically throwing stones and uh, having fistfights in, in a mountain because of water, right? That's not a good indicator of a working organization. Just saying. Right? It's propaganda. It's propaganda yeah, yeah, yeah. over and over again. Yeah. And it, the, you know, guys, what is the, the real sad thing? is that this propaganda gets to our politicians at the end. We've seen politicians acting to it as if it were real. And we all know it's completely bonkers and <laughs> bogus and, and invented by, by some guys in basements typing on <laughs> mother's computers or something like that. But it still fucking worked. Yeah, and this uh, is staring uh, uh, a little bit. The bricks, I usually joke. Uh, I've, I've said this to a few academics and politicians over here in Portugal, and they don't like it uh, very much, that the BRICS uh, has one problem. is Goldman Sachs is goddamn repents. Every day they that didn't copyright the term. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They could have made a fortune out of it. Because, I, I'm sorry to say, but the BRICS are an invention of Goldman Sachs, right? Yeah, two people. There was an analyst, two people. There was two two guys that once put on a report. Selling bonds. Uh, once put on a report that the BRICS were the next big thing. And even the guys at the BRICS believed it, for sure. But all right, I mean, they, they, all they've right. all drunk. No, no, they have all drunk the Kool Aid. Let's. Let, we have three hands up who've been patiently waiting, and they want to yeah, pepper yeah, you Abdullah, with questions. Abdullah, dry fly, and okay, Abdullah, go ahead. Salam alaikum, brother. How are you? Hey, wa alaikum, no, no, obrigado. Yeah, speaking of the global south, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen this. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's. I don't know if they already signed. Apparently, there was this agreement between the African leaders and the Russians, and the Russians were so, are supposed to create <laughs> a settlement. I don't know, maybe somewhere in Siberia, where they're going to bring in Africans, you know, to settle and stuff. But, but I think the African dictators forgot to read the fine print because it says that it's only white people <laughs> that can settle in the what a what a what, a, what, a, what the, you know. What the so hell? This, what uh, the hell? this African dictator is unbelievable, yeah? What the hell? <laughs> yeah. I think, Abdullah, I think that's, that, that's actually an interesting example of uh, pure propaganda. Uh, first of all... That's exactly right. Why would any African uh, move to Russia, middle of nowhere? Uh, 
<laughs> yeah, in, in Siberia. In Siberia, right. <laughs> in the middle of Siberia. Uh, good luck with yeah. that. I've trained some Mongolians in the north of Portugal. And the only thing I got was this is worse than a war because it's so goddamn cold. And it, it, I'll tr- and trust me, the north of Portugal is cold, but it ain't Siberia, right? So, hundred percent. No, I'll take I'll take Portugal any day. Yeah, right. So, I'm looking for... <laughs> right. So, uh, that's the thing, right? Uh, it's 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 all propaganda. Yeah, you can. Yeah, it's all it's all joke. It's, yeah. it's 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 a joke, but at the same time, it's something that uh, drives that narrative of Russia uh, engaging the global. That's why I hate so much the, the term the global south. Because technically, what's the global south? First of all, what's the global south? People tell me, well, it's Egypt and Niger. Well, I've got news for you. Niger and Egypt are in the northern hemisphere of the planet. Right? Not so southern after all. Yeah, if you're talking the global south, well, if you're talking no. the global south, what's the global south? Yeah, South Africa, uh, I- Okay, a number of countries, yeah, beyond the line of the Ecuador. Cool. Right? Because that's the south of the, the planet. But that's just me. And the term makes no sense. Because the, the interests of Brazil are not the interests of Nigeria. And the interests of Nigeria are not the interests of Mozambique. And Mozambique isn't the global south for sure, because it's not in the south. And it's like saying the United Arab uh, with uh, Abdullah is you're in the United Arab Emirates, right? Yeah, that's exactly that's you're exactly, not exactly right. the global live south. from the shores of the Arabian Gulf. Yeah, you're not exactly in the global south, right? No, 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 no. Thank you. We don't want to. I don't want to go to Siberia. No. <laughs> yeah, but you're not exactly in the global south either, right? Uh, if I want to fly to the global south, I, that's exactly right. If I, if I want to fly to the global south. I'll have to. I uh, usually fly through Dubai, right? So <laughs> that's that's the thing, right? It's a propaganda, and people pick it up and they use it. And politicians, as as Palmer would say, politicians eat it, right? Yeah, it's a total propaganda because at at the same time, remember there were there were there was uh, the talk about migrants and all that. It's all about uh, timing, and uh, you know, just like the, with the Quran burning, you know how. Right after the, that Swedish guy, the, the, the Iraqi guy mm-hmm. who lives in Sweden, uh, burned the Quran. Right after that, uh, Putin visited a mosque in Dakistan. It's, uh, I totally agree with you. It's, uh, it's a total pro- propaganda. And it's Choreogra- fairly effective, it's even though they're not serious. Yeah, but it's only effective for those who are gullible. Yeah. And uh, let, let's move to the next hands. Will you? That's exactly yeah. right. That's exactly right. But uh, yeah, I was going to ask you about uh, my question. Yeah, before uh, my question was about what uh, the former president of uh, France, uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, uh, pardon my French, uh, I don't know if you read yes, uh, I saw. No, I no, saw. what he said. Do you, I know that was the policy, the failed policy in the past 20 years. Do you think there are any other leaders who are in the closet with such sentiments? Any, any European leaders who, have, who, who, hold the, who hold the same view, but they're not saying it at the moment? <laughs> the current leadership, I don't think so. There are some. There are some that would like just to go away. Okay, there's significant people. There's leaderships in Europe that would very much like this to go away. 
there's even people in senior positions in the U.S. not um, exactly in the administration, but uh, senior positions that would like this to go away. Well, it ain't going away. There's a number of people that would like the Ukraine to go away. This problem would go away because they would like to go back to the status quo one day, uh, the status quo before the, the conflict. And I've said here multiple times, there's no status quo before to go back to. That's the failure of imagination. That's a failure of understanding. The world has shifted as it shifted in 9-11. It shifted again. And it shifted on the 24th of February, 2022. And there's no going back to that. And Russia is in instability. The fact that Russia is doing all it can not to mobilize its core population is a sign of instability. Uh, Prigozhin did what he did. What happened to Wagner? I was told that it's all a staged coup because now Wagner is ready to threaten whatever. No, Wagner uh, exists because of, of Africa. Because of, of their operations in Africa, the sanctions, the sanctions, evasions, the revenue, and the influence. That's why it, it was allowed to exist. It's not going anywhere. It's not doing anything. It's actually downsizing. It's now Concord. So that's something people need to understand. It's it's this. Uh, sometimes things are just what they they look like. I think there's also this need sometimes from analysts to overcomplicate things. Reminds me on the road to war when, well, if you're bringing in guys from Vladivostok, it's because you need them, not to show anything. You're bringing them halfway across the world. And half people looked at the map and saw the distance between Vladivostok and the border of Belarus, it's a hell of a distance, right? If you're bringing them, it's because you need them. But uh, I'll go to dry fly. I think it is uh, Lennar. I think it's Lennar. Sorry, Lennar. Please go ahead. I wanted you to cover the uh, timing aspect of the uh, the southern front. Every day now is basically making Ukraine stronger. Is there any outer time limit where you see uh, either weather or something else will make Ukraine weaker? Or please elaborate a little bit about this because I, there's so many so much noise in media about. Oh, as soon as it starts to rain, the the offensive will stop, etc. No, I don't think I don't. No, I don't think I don't. No, Leonard, I don't think that's, no, Leonard, that's the issue. I don't think that's that's the issue. I think, I think. Uh, Leonard, you you have a hot mic. Would you please mute so that we don't have feedback? Oh, thank you, Leonard. I was saying, um, I think we have a a time window um, in the south about October. Okay. That's the weather models I've I've uh, I, I was uh, I looked at. It's around October, okay. Uh, beyond that, um, uh, I think beyond that, it's it's um, it's um, it gets complicated. But October, I would say that's where we have basically a time. Uh, uh, a timeline until October, a time frame until October. Okay, uh, Leonard, I'm reporting about the weather forecast that's off of the south. Okay, so that's that's uh, my my view of this. 
Okay. Is it fair to append, uh, Nuno, just to, to exactly that point, is it fair to append that should Ukraine be able to reach Perekop, Amyansk, or break into Crimea, they could stretch it for another three to four weeks because on Crimea, due to the arid climate and the soil structure in the north of Crimea and the lack of rain, typically there is no such mud. If they if they break into Crimea or if they are able to isolate Crimea or they're in to in the, in the shores of the Sea of Azov, uh, Axel, all uh, we have war for the whole winter, easily. We can stretch the whole winter, and this whole thing will be this whole thing will be a totally different ball game, especially in part of the by the Russians. They'll be it's collapse. I, yeah. I, I I firmly believe this. Listen, I'm with you. If a break, 100%. If a, once a breakthrough happens, that's a serious breakthrough, or another front opens that allows a breakthrough, and basically the space that has no major Russian forces defending it is breached. Uh, trust me, that uh, there'll be uh, significant. Um, significant uh, uh, maneuver warfare maneuver warfare and not only significant maneuver warfare, significant significant impact for Russia and the stability of Russia I, I firmly believe that if maneuver warfare if we go to the maneuver phase of this uh, in the south and it's, it starts to crumble the whole thing starts to crumble. As General Hodges says, Crimea and the land bridge is the critical terrain. You break it, you win. That's it. Because the moment you break it or make it untenable, it's a matter of time and money and patience and Ukraine will be in an excellent position and people in Moscow will start to the, not the population, but the elites in Moscow will start to look at this and say, listen, <laughs> we have a problem. This thing needs to share. The, 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 guy, the guy here uh, needs to go. That's, that's my belief. It's my assessment. I may be wrong. I think we tend to agree. I think we tend to agree. Leonard, you have oh. a hot mic there. Leonard, you have a hot mic there. Uh, I just wanted to make a short comment. Oh. Don't go, Leonard, please. We need to wrap this up. Leonard? Okay, Leonard? I think we have Leonard. Nope. I... Nope. Uh, I think he may need to cycle, but... Okay, uh, so dry fly, Fletch, and we'll... Uh, annoy and, and we'll uh, wrap this up. Uh, dry fly, please. Yeah, I got a quick question. Okay, you were talking about there isn't enough, potentially not enough um, demining equipment. And I can understand how that would be the case if it's all fancy. But I'm looking at some of the pictures of some of the demining equipment that was delivered and some of the stuff that's in the past. And it looks painfully simple to me to manufacture. I'm thinking that the Ukrainians with a couple of farmers and some welders could start throwing some, uh, at least some of the crude ones. I mean, they look almost like, I don't know if you're familiar, I'm from farm country and I sold into the um, farm machinery industry. Mm -hmm. It looks, they look almost like cultivators 
or disc cultivators that are pushed in front of the vehicle instead of dragged behind. Yes. And I'm thinking to myself, they could make a shit ton of those in the, in some of those fab shops that Ukrainians are famous for having. I mean, I've seen the pictures of what they've done with tanks, you know, modifying stuff like, oh, we got this, we got that. And they make these Franken tanks, Frankenstein tanks, you know, and could they do the same thing with demining and, and totally take that problem away in a list? Yeah, uh, and dry fly, yeah, you could probably uh, use the caterpillars and John Deere's to to use as my uh, demining some caterpillars or some tracked caterpillars and that kind of machine, heavy machinery to use as the mining equipment, right? But um, uh, it's it's not. Uh, it's not easy, and the the fancy the problem with the mining equipment is you need to the mine and you need to fight, right? Well, well, I'm thinking of the ones that go in the front. So some of these tanks have like they look like they have almost hitches on the front. Yes, yeah, kind okay? of shovel. Then they attach. They got yeah, and then they attach. Yeah, they attach stuff to the front, and the stuff in the front looks to be painfully crude. Like guys could manufacture those in country, literally on demand. And that's the question I was asking: Is why isn't that being looked at, and should they be doing it? And I'll be listening. I don't, I don't think they're doing it yet. I'm not sure what's the reason. I know they've done some of that stuff, but not in sufficient numbers to use at the front, apparently. But some of it, some of the most, the more fancy stuff like Miklicks and uh, which are shape charges launched into the minefields, or even. Uh, other uh, systems we have with wheels and chains and whatnot, that's different systems. But those heavy machinery systems, are, they could be done like that, but I don't know if they've been done. I really don't drive on. This goes hand in hand with what uh, General McRyan said yesterday as to the standardization of platforms. If mm-hmm. you look at the British Titan or the two versions, the old Leopard 1 and then the Leopard 2 version of the uh, demining pa- tanks as well as the French version, they are all very, very similar in that regard. The, the only issue is that we do not have enough tank platforms at the moment. It is essentially, funny enough, yet again, our American friends who are currently withholding M1 Abrams, even the old models, um, from uh, the Ukrainians for reasons which are politically vested. By the way, no, just very briefly, uh, Anthony Blinken supposedly just as uh, his... Uh, um, State Department, as well as the DOD, both in parallel, um, highlighted that letters have been conveyed to Denmark and the Netherlands that the F-16 transfer is approved. Now, evidently, that means very little if, uh, yeah, things have been trained up too late, but supposedly it's now formally approved. For yeah, and, and, and the heavy machinery is not armored, is it? Um, yeah. As, there's that. Um, and I think it's Fletch next, and uh, even Fletch, please go ahead. Yeah, thanks, Ninda. <clears throat> yeah, just to summarise this up front, um, what the viewers have got to understand, that clearing mines is an easy job if the clearing equipment is not under fire. Now, Ukraine have launched the attrition warfare, which basically they're attacking the artillery, which is one of the main killers of mine clearing uh, equipment, um, and they have the uh, cluster munitions for the trenches, which are manned, and they also have the IFBs to overwatch. Uh, so if there was no manning of the trenches or no artillery, then clearing the, clearing a path would be a lot easier. Yeah, that's the first thing. Um, that, now, the artillery, as we know, is getting hammered. 
there's more reports over the last few days that they're lacking artillery in the southern area. So that's all good news, you know, for Ukraine and what you were hinting on to about a breakthrough in this area. On the Robotny side, I wouldn't be surprised if, if they occupy it now um, because they'd launched um, the attack on the three-pronged area uh, from the west. Uh, they covered the Kapani axis. Um, and from the east, they're also putting pressure on the Bobovi area, but they're, they're, they're addressing Robotny from the east and they're coming in from the north. And it's the same how they address Stare Malinsky. Um, they're allowing them an exit through the south. And hopefully they'll get hammered by cluster munitions and the artillery, yes. which seems to be the, yeah, which seems to be SOP, what which seems to be the SOP for now. It is it, exactly. I mean, if we move over to Stara Malinka, I mean, there's two high grounds to the west and the east, and it looks like um, they may um, vacate um, the settlement, you know, just ahead of Urizane and leave Stara Malinka, because they're already starting to hit Stara Malinka now. So if they can take the high grounds to the west and the east, I think that's another key area. If they get that, then who knows, Mar Mariupol could be a drive as well. And there's a couple there's of things. Another thing, Fletch, on that. There, I think Ukrainians are trying to, to build uh, basically uh, a significant gap so they can, when uh, they can exploit they can exploit in several directions, and it's easier to sustain. Yeah, they, they've got all the flanks covered everywhere. Yeah. You're, every single flank is covered with a different brigade. I mean, that, that, that seems to be the modus operandi on this, you know, where they come in from the west and the east and they finalise it through the north. You know, that, that seems to be how, how they're operating in this area, certainly. Um, a couple of things on the Storm Shadow. Yes, that they're using X amount um, with the Storm Shadows and Scalps on a monthly basis. Um, but there is news that M MBDA, which is Mantra, you know, British Aerodynamics, um, they, they are producing more. So hopefully, you know, there was some meetings last week uh, with the British defence industry. And I think that was the conversation yeah, yeah of uh, how many more can be produced. The only issue with that is the only facility MBDA, because MBDA is a consortium, I believe, between British Aerospace, uh, Airbus, and Mantra. Airbus and yeah. Mantra, Mantra, and yeah. uh, someone else. But uh, MBDA, uh, and the only line they have available to produce the scalp, Storm Shadow scalp, which is basically the same missile with small differences, um, is the French one for now. Yeah, we'd be, we'd be interested to know what numbers, you know, I can't find any numbers anywhere, uh, you know what I mean? I don't know the numbers either. Uh, we've been no. trying, they've been very sketchy about what numbers we're talking about. Uh, which, the, which problem, is, the, which problem is, the problem there is that MBDA Germany currently is extremely focused on getting more Taurus up. And it seems that a lot of design capacity, a lot of planning capacity within MBDA worldwide is focused on exactly that. So one which would lead one to hope. Which makes sense. Would, which yes. makes sense because you need a stop gap to the for the stocks. And the Taurus Exactly, is, and they can refurbish the Taurus as exactly. well, because a lot of them weren't operational. Yeah, it's weren't about so. six hundred of them, I think three hundred operational. And the Taurus is a different, a slightly different missile because of its fuse. Okay. It's a more advanced fuse than the sculpt. 
the original sculpt version. It's it's a sculpt for all purposes, but it's a bit longer range and it has uh, different views. But oh, the timing fuses, yeah. 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 If, if you're not down to the split second, as you know, you know it explodes too early or too late. Yeah, on yeah, those. yeah. And that fuse in particular is a very sophisticated one, and that fuse can make a real difference. It's it's basically the major difference between the Taurus and the, yeah. the other versions of the skull. Now, yeah, plus the extra, extra, extra. Um, sorry, mindful of Nuno's time. Nuno, uh, you wanted to take the additional question from Oyvind, and uh, then we wrap it yeah, up. Yeah. Yeah, Oivind and Peter, and we'll wrap it up. Quick questions, gentlemen. Thank you. Um, there was painted a picture here that uh, it's very up to the uh, supporter of Ukraine if they want to, if they're going to succeed or, or not. But uh, my question to you, if you can answer it, what can you say about Ukraine's own production of weapon and ammo? Is it... Uh, uh, significant or is it just a spit in the ocean no, no, compared it's, to it's, what they get from the West? It's significant. And uh, with the new leadership uh, of Ukrainian defense industries, uh, it has ramped up significantly. And there are some in very interesting things coming out of Ukraine, even, even, uh, even at uh, other levels. So... There's very, very interesting things coming out of Ukraine. So don't discard the Ukrainian defense industry, okay? They're producing, they'll start producing, I believe, 155s uh, shortly uh, in numbers. So don't discard the Ukraine's own uh, industrial capability, right? Because they have a significant industry and they've reshaped it and it's it's going well. And they've they've fielded some interesting, very, very interesting stuff. And there's more and Thank more you. in the in in the in the pipeline. There's some very <laughs> scary stuff in the pipeline, actually. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. I step Peter. All right. To wrap it up. Last question. <laughs> Last question. Uh, yeah, no, no. Do you think it's going to be better for Ukraine to concentrate on breaking through the? land grab to Crimea through to the coast uh, and kind of concentrate then on isolating Crimea, which is to blow up the bridges, blow up the, the airfields and hit the harbour uh, and, yes. and then starve it and yes. then go in when, it's, uh, when they're weak because that yes. to me is more yes. sense. Yes. Yeah. yes. Okay. Yes. That's 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 my view, and I would not discard the possibility of, depending on the level of uh, panic that generates, uh, other major operations may become interesting in the north. Depending, yeah, depending uh, on what happens. Yeah. On just how very the quick. enemy reacts. Yeah, just very quickly, Chuck was, uh, we spoke to last night, was really sure that America had already given them attackums uh, at some point very quietly because he believes that they were used on a couple of strikes around Crimea. And Saki, he specifically singled out the strike on Saki. 
Saki yeah. was striked by attackers. So I, that's I all mean, I'm going to say about this. Saki was striked by attackers. That's it. Yeah. So that history, will, that American... story, that story will one day come to light. Yeah. But it's a strike by attackers. Saki is a strike with attackers. So America needs to give Ukraine more attackers to isolate uh, Crimea, which should suit America because they don't want. Um, it'll it'll be a few months before it's completely lost um, to Russia. And attackums uh, is important. Attackums is important because of reducing uh, the kill chain of high value targets, which means uh, now to long story short. Uh, uh, Ukraine operational command, uh, a divisional command or a brigade command has reports of a, a, a high value target, let's, let's say a, an S400 uh, array, and from one of its uh, recce units, for instance. And nowadays they'll need to use to basically call the general staff in Kiev, uh, and the general staff would need to direct the the Ukrainian Air Force to strike uh, with an air-launched cruise missile at that target. This takes some time. The target may move. And and even if the target doesn't move, it takes uh, additional time. And um, it's uh, uh, a missile like the uh, an air-launched cruise missile has uh, additional uh, Issues because the plane needs to get into the kills into the the launch zone, so it you see that there's a lot of time, and strategically for for the general staff in Kiev, that S four hundred may not be a priority in the overall theater, right? Because the op, for the operational commander it's an op, it's an opportunity, but for Kiev or the commanding Kiev that may be in the overall big picture. That may not be a priority. There may be other places in the theater that are a priority for a, a, a scarce asset like the, the skull. The difference with Atakams is Atakams is launched from the M270s or the HIMARS systems, which means that an operational commander or division command may have an artillery unit under his command with that capability. And if he, if he gets the target, he can strike the target. I get the point, Peter. Yeah, Numa, thank you. It's it's always a, a delight to talk to you. That shortens shortens the the kill the kill uh, the targeting process very very much. Okay, and it's always in it's an an, an additional importance of the attackums is you can strike heavily defended targets. Let's say we we want to strike Sevastopol. You can do it with uh, drones, cruise missiles, and ballistic missile, right? It's a multi-vector, multi-pronged, multi-direction attack. The, the level of destruction and the success of the attack will be uh, potentiated heavily, right? So that's the importance of attackums. And it's also, and the towers and the attackums are uh, an important stopgap for the stocks of, uh, for the dwindling stocks of Sculpt. Before we can 
uh, ramp up production. Okay? G-Man, you're just over the time. Go ahead. Just really quickly, it was what Chuck said about the TACTUM is that Ukraine have got a limited number of attacktums from someone. He didn't say that it was from the US and it likely wasn't from the US. It's somebody else who has previously bought them from the US has slipped them into Ukraine. Limited numbers. Mm -hmm. Deniability. Mm -hmm. Cool. Just to clarify. Cool. Cool. Chuck is probably correct. That's a wrap. And that's a wrap. Uh, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Let's leave it at that. I know Carrie here was at her hand up. Go ahead, Carrie. Just to wrap it up, and that's it. Oh, Nuno, thank you so much. I'm really sorry. I'm stuck in a middle of a nature reserve, living in a hut, and the signal's terrible. So I've just been able to get in to hear you now, which is really good. I've been listening to you uh, about 10 minutes wanted to ask you, so Dimitri, War Translated, put up a really fascinating um, translation earlier today from Russian Colonel Shavalov, <laughs> which is a hilarious name. <laughs> and it was just interesting because he was saying, um, he was commenting about cluster munitions. And one of the key things that I picked up, he said, was we had to throw all our efforts into blocking supply of cluster munitions to Ukraine declare that we would not use such munitions to tear apart the Europeans who have cluster munitions banned. There was a chance, but they played us. We happily fell for it and declared that we had these cluster munitions, whole landfills of them, not just stockpiles. Yes, we have many, and you can search for photos. Um, I was just sort of wondering about your thoughts, you know, as these things are coming to light in Western media. Do you think any declarations like this might be looked at by our politicians and see that as we think very much on this space, they are just being played. Will they listen to this? Will it change anything? No. That's what I thought your answer would be. No. You want an answer? No. Interesting though, isn't it? uh, I think uh, uh, there's guys out there like uh, like Dan Rice uh, who have been, who's a guy with a quite the track record in this war, who's been instrumental in this war, and that, uh, and he he wrote interesting pieces and he he lobbied for the cluster munitions. He's now lobbying for the M twenty six rockets with cluster with cluster munitions, and I stand with him. Uh, lobby for the M twenty six, lobby for the attackers, lobby for towers, because the it's like this. We need to give them the assets we developed to stop the Warsaw Pact. That's what we need to give them. If we're fighting the Warsaw Pact, give them. Of course, the Russians didn't expect this to be to happen and expect the effect they have and the effectiveness uh, of our ammunition. But we've reduced the... Ukraine has reduced the the Russian... A good part of the Russian military to scrap with 50 IMARs, not even 50. Uh, so that's that, right? And that's why Dan Rice, fortunately, advises the Zaluzli. Zaluzli. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know, I know. And and uh, if Dan Rice is lobbying for something, we lobby for something. If he's lobbying for space. 
<laughs> I, my 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 um, uh, rule of thumb is if Dan Rice is lobbying for space lasers, I'm lobbying for space lasers because that's it, right? <laughs> All righty, no, no, thank you. Okay, thank you so much uh, for the time. Uh, we ran a bit over the time, but no worries because I'm on holiday, so a bit more time. And we'll see you all again next week. Excellent. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Have a good one.